in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. We are going to, beginning, going to be beginning a series called Jesus Among the World Religions. I have toyed with this idea for about a year and a half. Some of you have heard me think about this out loud. What would it be like to dive into Jesus among the world religions, right? What is unique about what we believe, especially in comparison with the teaching of other world religions? And the reason is, now think about this with me. So let's say you lived in the year 1900. How long could you go in your life, if you weren't, say, in New York City or Chicago, how long could you live in this country, the year 1900, without encountering somebody of another major world religion? Think about that. If you didn't live in New York City or Chicago, if you were, say, here, how long could you go without meeting somebody of another major world religion? With possibly here in in St. Paul, you may be able to run into some Jewish people, but for the most part, in most of this country, in the year 1900, you could go almost your entire life without meeting somebody of another major faith. Unless you were close to an Indian reservation or close to like a Jewish neighborhood, Uh, most people outside of major, major cities could go their whole lives without meeting somebody from another major world faith. But today, you couldn't even go to Starbucks without finding somebody from another major world religion. I mean, you could go out on foot, and in five minutes, you will encounter somebody from another major world religion. And that's actually much more like it was in the early church. So when we read the early church fathers, they were this minority of minorities. They were just a a smidgen of the population, and they were surrounded by other faiths. But they were surrounded by pagans, by Eastern religions, by all sorts of things. And so in a way, being in a much more pluralistic, multicultural society is a kind of a hearkening back to Christianity's roots in learning how to live in a very multicultural and diverse setting. And so it's something that we are lagging behind in. Because if you ask most Christians, hey, what does a Hindu person believe? Or what does a Buddhist believe? Most people really don't know beyond a a few bullet points. And so I thought it'd be really valuable. I'm donning my uh, professor of world religion hat right now. But also, I think in, in order to be salt and light to our city, it makes a lot of sense to understand the faiths of those around us. And even even to ask what good can we find in them, but what are they missing, right? And that's ultimately going to be Christ. Uh, So uh, I want to open this story. I may have told this. Have I told you guys about the Hard Rock Cafe bracelet with all the different versions of the golden rule here? Have I told this story? I forget sometimes where I tell different stories. Um, So I was in high school. I was 17, and this girl came to school uh, and, you know, the, the lunch table is like everything in high school, pecking order stuff, right? And I remember this sort of like popular girl sat down uh, at the table and she had this bracelet, this obnoxious bracelet, right? Where it was like, like a normal bracelet, but then there was like these long, almost imagine a bunch of bracelets that are undone, just hanging straight off of the bracelet. So it's just like this obnoxious thing with all these like bracelets hanging off of the bracelet. And uh, so, of course, like seeing this strange like, multicolored, like, peacock bracelet thing coming off of her arm. I was like, well, what's, what's that? And uh, she said, well, you know, I was at some hard rock cafe, and I saw it, and I was really inspired because it's, it's a kind of version of the golden rule from all of the major world religions. So it, of course, had the Christian golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would like them to do unto you, something like that. And then it had kind of a Hindu, Buddhist, uh, Islam, uh, Muslim version of the same and from their scripture. And then she kind of... <laughs> in kind of a snotty way, was like, so 
you know, see, like Christianity doesn't really have much to offer because, you know, they all kind of say the same thing. Uh, and you guys have probably run into this. There's a lot of people who in the 20th century particularly were like, all faiths essentially say the same thing. Now, when I was 17, I did not have the maturity then to know what I know now. But now I know that this is actually not a surprise and we should be concerned if it weren't like that. Because the Bible says that God put truth on our hearts. And so as human beings, we have a certain amount of wisdom that's given through general revelation, not through the specific revelation of scripture and Christ, but we have a certain amount of general revelation. Uh, Romans 2, Paul said, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. So the fact that our ethics are sometimes similar to the ethics of other faiths doesn't tell us that our religion is therefore less worthy. It tells us something about God and something about us and how he made us. Uh, so we'll, we're not talking about ethics the whole time, but I just wanted to intro this with this story. If we believe that what the Bible says about humanity and God is true, that we are truly created in his image, male and female, and that we have this kind of nature of God, this kind of spark from him, then what would be really shocking is if you went to different human uh, civilizations around the world and the ethics were remarkably different. Now, of course, there are differences in culture, but we see a remarkable consistency in how people live among others in society. So like what we see in the commandments, for example, in the Old Testament, do not lie, do not steal, do not murder, do not commit adultery, honor your father and mother. These kinds of things, these high level commands for how to get along with your neighbor in society are remarkably consistent across human civilization. Now there are some exceptions, uh, but for the most part, these things stand. And so in regard to wisdom and to life, we actually have a lot, because the ethics are quite similar, not the actual nature of who God is and who we are, but because the ethics of the different religions are similar, we actually have a lot that we can learn or a lot that we can at least engage in dialogue in and wrestle with. So I wanted to read you guys some Augustine, right? Every good sermon starts with some Augustine. Uh, <laughs> so he was reflecting on this. Now remember, uh, there was a much more a multicultural world in, in Augustine's day um, than even we might have felt like we grew up in, in, in the United States here. So he's saying, in regard to pagan Greek religion, he says, moreover, if those who are called philosophers, and especially the Platonists, have said anything that is true and in harmony with our faith, we are not only to shrink from it, but to claim it for our own use from those who have unlawful possession of it. So he starts making this argument and says, if there is truth in the Greek philosophers, in the pagans, if there's truth in other religions, that truth is God's. And because we are God's people, that truth is now ours. We can actually take this truth from other uh, philosophies, other, you know, whether science from another country, other philosophies. When we, when we find truth, that's God's truth, and we can take that. And he relates this, this is a famous teaching, he relates it to when the Israelites were escaping Egypt, that they plundered the Egyptians as they went, right? So as they were leaving Egypt, the Egyptians poured their gold out on them. They're like, hey, here, take, take our jewels, take our vessels, take our gold. And so he said, Egyptian gold, this is the famous quote, is Egyptian gold is still gold, right? So if there is truth, if there is gold in Egypt, you don't have to throw that away just because it's Egyptian, it's still gold. And in the same way, he's saying, if the pagans have stumbled on some truth, then you can use that truth and benefit from that. So he, he goes on, he says, this is a little bit 
um, geeky or academic sounding, but he says, in the same way, all branches of heathen learning have not only false and superstitious fancies and heavy burdens of a necessary toil, which every one of us, when going out under the leadership of Christ from the fellowship of the heathen, ought to abhor and avoid, but they contain also a great quantity of instruction which is better adapted to the use of truth and some most excellent precepts of morality and some truths in regard even to the worship of the one God are found among them. So he's saying there are some truths in other faiths. He, this is Augustine here, not me. There are some truths as to how to better worship the true and one God that, that may even be present in pagan religion. Now that's a a statement I wouldn't necessarily dare make on my own authority, but this is Augustine, so I feel like I can lean pretty heavy on him, uh, and that's it's certainly an interesting point. Um, and then he says, now these are, so to speak, their gold and silver, which they did not create themselves, but dug out of the mines of God's providence. So he's saying, again, God's truth is truth that we can use. And so when, you, when pagan and, and, and other religious systems have found gold, those are actually God's minds that they found them from and that we can use some of it and discard the rest of it, which is certainly uh, an interesting way to look at this. And so it had me thinking, how does the Bible present how God makes himself known, not fully, but does God ever partially make himself known through the teachings of other faiths? Uh, and now, of course, hear me correctly on this. No, right? We don't have the teaching of Christ died and resurrected on the third day in other faiths. But what truth do we have? And then how can we better know those faiths so that we can better reach people coming from those backgrounds? And that reminded me of this story. So I want to tell you guys a story from Ezra 1, um, and you can just listen along. So a bit of background here is that the Jews were slaves in Babylon for about 70 years, and Babylon was this impregnable city, right? Nobody could conquer it, and the Babylonians thought that they were so sure. And then if you'll remember from your Bibles, there's this story of Daniel being a slave there. And toward the end of his life, he's not like the young whippersnapper. He's now like an old sage that was kind of forgotten. And then he was called back up to read this writing on the wall. Do you guys remember this story? There's Mene Mene Tekel Parson written on the wall. And everyone's scared because this like angelic hand is writing it. And so they call up Daniel to see if he can read it. And so he comes to the court. He interprets it. And he basically says, it's over for you guys. Uh, you're, you're going down. Um, and they're all just kind of in disbelief, right? Because this is Babylon. Nobody can conquer Babylon. And then one of the greatest engineering feats in history, I, I preached on this when we first started the church, uh, but one of the greatest engineering feats in history was undertaken that night by Cyrus and the Persians. What they did is they diverted the Euphrates River. So one of the largest rivers in the world flows right through Babylon. And it was completely impossible to get into that city or to scale the walls. There was no way you were getting in. But what you could do is go 10 miles upstream and divert the river. So they actually had like hundreds of thousands of uh, people with like shovels and you know horses and plows and all this stuff. They didn't have cranes and whatnot, but they, they actually dug a separate ditch for a river. And then they somehow managed to divert, they like they just filled up the Euphrates River and then dug a separate channel for it all within a few hours. And then they essentially did the switch and they moved the Euphrates River, <laughs> which I just think is amazing. And then they just walked right into Babylon in the riverbed because the river went into the city. It was the lowest part of the city. So they just, they just walked right under the city walls. They walked in with their, you know, thousands and thousands of soldiers. No one, of course, was expecting it. They were all partying and they just came in and completely wiped out 
the city, which I think is one of the coolest uses of history. Uh, you can read part of this in Daniel and, and from the biblical background, but then there's also these Greek historians who tell this story and you can put it together and it's a pretty cool story. So um, regardless of diverting rivers, uh, then Cyrus, the king of the Persians, is now the new king. And this is amazing that after 70 years of slavery, Cyrus comes into power and in one of his first days, this happens. It says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven. So this is Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So think about this for a second. Where do you think King Cyrus was when Yahweh, the God of heaven, gave him this vision that he needed to let the Jews go free and then go rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. Think about that for a moment. Where was Cyrus? Well, it doesn't tell us, but what we do know about ancient religion, and specifically ancient Zoroastrian religion, which would have been his faith, is that they in the ancient world and other faiths too had this, this view that if you truly wanted to be heard by the gods, you had to be in that temple, right? Um, so if you wanted to be heard, you had to be in the temple. It's kind of like our, our view of cell phone service. I think I've, I've talked about this before, that if your cell phone gets too far away from a tower, you don't have very good service. And so you need to get closer to a cell phone tower and then your call can go through. It actually makes a lot of sense, right? That's exactly what they thought prayer was like. It's like if you wanted to be heard by God, you had to be in the cell phone tower, so to speak. You had to be in the temple or at least close to the temple. And God forbid that you have to live on the outskirts or be far away from the temple or, or never have the resources to travel to the temple because then you wouldn't be heard. And so a lot of scholars will say, okay, so here King Cyrus is praying for wisdom. He is almost surely not praying to Yahweh. He's not a Jew. Actually, we're sure. He's not a Jew. He's not praying to Yahweh. He is probably praying to Ahura Mazda, who is the Zoroastrian god. And he is most likely in a Zoroastrian temple, because that's like our, our sort of notion that you can have your quiet time, like in your bedroom or in the church or in a hospital, you could just be all over. That was not how the ancient world worked. So if he's trying to have this truth, this revelation from his god, he most likely would have been in a Zoroastrian temple. And then this is what's shocking is that he seems to hear from God, but not this false God. He seems to hear from Yahweh inside a Zoroastrian temple. Now, wow, I, I want to be careful what I say about that, because I'm not saying, hey, you can just worship God from any temple and just have all these mistaken beliefs and it's just all the same. Certainly not. But God sometimes, it seems, chooses to make himself known even in the temple of false religion. Even in the temples of false gods, sometimes God will break in and say, no, no, here's truth, which is really interesting. So 
we have to be aware that even in the Bible, sometimes God chooses to make himself known directly through the practice of other religions. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't baptize those other religions. That doesn't mean that that's an acceptable way to God. But it means that God sometimes uses those faiths to make his own truth or to make his own will be followed, which is uh, fascinating. It's something you have to be, it's, it's touchy. We have to be careful with it and how we treat it, but we also can't ignore it because sometimes it can be a temptation. The Bible will sometimes make um, other religions just seem like, well, it's just all demon worship. It's just all demon worship. Now, there's certainly truth to that. It, it can be demon worship, and so we have to be careful. But then there are other times like this where God is directly revealing himself in what's likely uh, Zoroastrian temple. So uh, it's something to consider as we look at how God works in the world, how he may work sometimes through other faiths in order to bring people to the true knowledge of Christ. So let me tell one more story. This is kind of a we aren't going into any of the specific world religions today. This is just kind of a, an intro week as we try to reframe some of the ways we think about the great world faiths and then what Christ brings to that round table of discussion. Um, so let me tell you this story of Paul in Athens as well. If you guys were with us in the beginning of the church plant, you may remember this story. So it's a favorite among people who want to go on the mission field. I'm sure a lot of you have had discussions on this. In Acts 17, Paul goes from, instead of this sort of Hellenic Jewish world, he goes right to Athens, which of course is like the center of ancient knowledge. It's like, I don't know, it's like what uh, Oxford or something would be today. And so he goes to Athens and he looks all around him and he sees that there's these, these temples everywhere and there's altars to all sorts of gods. But he sees there are these altars as well that say agnostoi theo. It means uh, to an unknown God. It's where we get the word agnostic. Agnosto is uh, like a, something that we do not know. Uh, and so an agnostic would say, I don't know if there is a God or not. And that same word is the word here. It's to an unknown God, right? So it's not like, hey, I don't know if God exists. It's just saying to a God that remains unknown, not known. And so he sees this. And a lot of people just think, hey, he sees this idol, this sort of, uh, not idol, uh, altar, and he doesn't really know what it means, but he does something really creative with it. And that's not actually what's happening here. He goes on to say, well, hey, you have all these other gods, you're religious people, but let me tell you about this unknown God. And a lot of people think that's all he's doing. Hey, there's an unknown God. He doesn't know how that works, but he's going to tell us about this unknown God. But actually, there's a really rich story to the background of this. Do you guys remember? Does anyone remember this story a little bit? I won't make you tell it or anything. Do you guys remember? Yeah, Jacob, anyone else remember? I told this years ago. So don't, I don't remember what pastors say years later. So I just wonder if anyone <laughs> remembers this. Um, so Paul is standing in a place called the Areopagus, which had this really important place in Athenian society. It's where Socrates was put to death, if that means anything. It's where a lot of their public debates and philosophy would happen. But a few hundred years, even before Socrates, something else had happened there, and Paul is very specifically referencing that. So the reason I'm telling this story is that I'm saying Paul had a deep and significant knowledge of Greek religious history. He wasn't just like kind of freewheeling it. He knew exactly what they believed and why, not just about like Zeus or some big figure, about like really arcane, distant history, but he knew it well enough to use it, adapt it, and to share the gospel through it. And so I'm going to be advocating for us to not just know a couple things about the great world faiths, but to know them well so that we can use those stories to engage in meaningful conversation so that people can know Jesus through that conversation. And if we don't deeply know other religions' histories, then we won't be able to do what Paul does here. So what he does is um, he remembers this story 
where a terrible plague struck Athens in the year 600 BC. Most scholars think it was bubonic plague, so people's you know, fingers were turning black and they were dying. It was awful. So much of Athens was dying, and they sacrificed to all their gods. They did all their little oblations and everything to try to get rid of this plague, but it didn't work. And so they ran out of ideas, and they called a council. Now, you can read about this, by the way. If you've ever been in a library and seen the classics section where they have like tons of those little green books and then tons of those little red books, do you guys know what I'm talking about? It's called the Loeb, uh, it's like the Loeb's Classics Library. And it's all of the great Greek classics and all the great Latin classics. And all the Greek ones are in green and all the Latin ones are in red. And they take up a whole wall. And you can read these stories in those. Um, And so they called this council. They were like, how do we get rid of this plague? So they called a priestess. And she said, well, there is this prophet poet on the island of Crete uh, who is a true prophet. He's the only one that they knew of. And maybe he would know how to solve this plague in Athens. And so they sent a ship to Crete to fetch this prophet. And his name was Epimenides. And they implored him to sail to Athens uh, to help them stay this plague before it was too late. Anyone know the name Epimenides? Sound familiar? If it does sound familiar... If you ever read the footnotes in your Bible, he is actually, he has the honor of being the only Greek pagan poet directly quoted word for word in the New Testament. Paul quotes him twice. Uh, And so Paul knew him and he knew this story well, and he directly quotes him. Uh, So Epimenides goes with, they say, hey, please come to Athens, help us solve this plague. And he goes with. And strangely, he took a bunch of sheep with him. This reminds us almost more of the Old Testament than of like, uh, Greek philosophers, but he took a bunch of sheep and he starved the sheep for just a day or two. You know, sheep are eating all day long, just constantly. So he wasn't like being super cruel, but he did, he did starve the sheep for a day or two so that they would be extra hungry and ready to graze when they got to Athens. And so when they got to Athens, they went to the Oropagus. Now the, the same place Paul is 600 years later talking. They went to the Oropagus uh, and this prophet Epimenides spoke and he had three assumptions that he shared. One, he said that there is a God concerned in this matter of this plague whose name is still unknown. Like you guys have sacrificed to your 300 gods here in Greece. There is still a God left whose name is unknown and therefore you've not done your work. You've not sacrificed to this God yet. Um, But whoever that God is, we don't know, might help. Uh, Two, the second assumption is that God is great enough This God, this unknown God, would be great enough and good enough to do something about the plague if only we invoke his help. And then the third assumption was that any God great enough and good enough to do something about that plague is probably also great enough and good enough to overlook the fact that we don't know who he is. So there is a God still concerned in this that would do something. Uh, The God is probably powerful enough to help. And three, if that God is powerful enough to help, it's probably a nice enough God to overlook the fact that we, oops, we didn't know who that one was. We never figured that identity out before. So uh, Epimenides let the sheep out. And what he said was that wherever the sheep didn't graze, these are hungry, you know, starved sheep, they should be grazing on grass. Uh, but wherever they didn't graze, but laid down instead, just kind of hanging out, laying down like they were totally full, that place would become an altar. So they would sacrifice that particular sheep and make an altar right there. And uh, the people thought it was ridiculous. They're like, you haven't fed these sheep. You haven't let them graze in in days. They're going to just eat. That's all they're going to do. They're going to eat for hours to catch up. But then they let them out. And that's exactly what happened is that some of them, 
lied down and they were just fully content, had no interest in eating. And so Epimenides instructed them to mark the spot where the sheep lay and to build an altar on that very spot. And then the, the people were like, well, what do we inscribe on the altar? You always have to have an inscription on an altar. And then the, the story just, I'll try to shorten it up here. But Epimenides is like, well, we can't put anything on the altar because we don't know the name of this God. So let's just acknowledge that we don't know who, who it is that is, is causing these sheep to behave so strangely. So let's just put to an unknown God on the altar, right? So this is at the very place Paul is 600 years later. So when Paul sees these altars to an unknown God, it's these very altars that, that he's commenting on that happened with this whole sheep thing. So um, they put to an unknown God on these altars. And of course, then uh, beginning the very next day, the plague uh, waned and weakened. And within a week, all of the stricken had recovered and the plague was gone. So Epimenides was a hero and they carved all these statues of him and made all these temples of his, you know, with his like figure and statue inside. Uh, but those have all faded or been destroyed or all of the rocks have been taken down one upon another to build up other things. But those altars remained to an unknown God. And so for 600 years, Athenians had known that their entire civilization had been spared and continued by a God that they did not know and that they had been bountifully blessed by some foreign God. And they didn't know what his name was or, or, or what his story was, but they respected that God, that God and knew his power and they awaited the day that some, someday they might discover his true identity. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about. He's not just saying, hey, you've got unknown gods. Let me tell you about an unknown God. He's saying, hey, you know that specific story where you were saved by a God who you did not know? I will tell you who that God is now. Um, and that's how he shared. So he deeply knew their history and he connected with it. Now, what's interesting is I think a lot of people today, when they say, well, how do you share your faith with somebody from... Uh, another world faith. Like, how would you share with a Greek pagan or how would you share with a Hindu? How would you share with a Muslim? The tendency, especially among evangelicals, is to be like, ah, that's all demon worship. Everything you've ever been taught is lies. What you need is the truth. And there is some, maybe some truth to that. Um, but what's really interesting is that not, that's not what Paul does, right? He goes to Greek pagans and instead of saying, everything you've ever been taught is a lie, He's like, well, hey, let me connect with your religious history and the things that you've been taught and let me show you the history of the revelation of God through your system. So he's kind of working to catch fish and he'll, you know, you, you, clean the, you clean the fish after you catch them, right? So it's not like a bait and switch, right? But you first, you got to catch the fish, right? And, that, and then later you clean them, right? So I think it's like Paul is doing some of this. He's sharing through their own religious system. He's creating a bridge. And then later he's going to let more of the true doctrine come in and, and, and fully flesh out that picture. But he knows their religious background deeply. He's not just like, hey, you've got a guy named Zeus. Let me tell you about the real Zeus. He's like, no, you know this really strange story from 600 years ago right here on this altar that's so faded, most people can't read it? I'll tell you that story. And I think that, that is, there's a call for us as Christians to learn from Paul in that. Right? He, he says that we ought to imitate him. Right? I think he tells Timothy to imitate him. And this is something we don't imitate him in, is that we know very little about faiths that are not our own. And so this is an encouragement I have for us. We're about to enter into this Jesus Among the World Religions series. It'll go somewhere between six to 12 weeks. I'm not sure, depending on how some of the religions shake out, if we need two or just one week to cover them. But over these next uh, few months, um, I want us to learn more about these world faiths, and then to see some of the good and then some of the evil, but then also to see how Christ is just so shockingly different, right? The ethics might be similar, but Christ is so 
different in that most of the religions, I don't want to make this stereotype, but there's some truth to it that people will say most human religion is humans trying to claw and strive toward perfection. It's us trying to reach God. And the shocking thing about Christianity is that it's God saying, you can't, right? you can't do it, but, but I can, right? And so God enters into our existence as human flesh. He incarnates, right? He, he becomes meat. He becomes flesh. That's where we get that word uh, carne from. Uh, he becomes meat, he becomes flesh, and lives among us, lives a perfect life, dies a perfect death, rises again on the third day for the forgiveness of our sins. And that's what's so distinct about Christianity and completely unlike anything you have in another world faith, even if the ethics to uh, love the poor, right, and treat your neighbor as yourself and honor your father and mother, those might be similar. But Christianity is so distinct and remarkably unique in that it's the only faith in which God himself is the one achieving the goal of humankind rather than humans trying to always claw and, and do it for ourselves. I think um, I've shared this before, but the last words of the first Buddha were, um, let's see if I can get this right. Never stop, was never cease striving. It was like a cease, strive unceasingly. That's what it is. Strive unceasingly. And of course, Jesus's last words are, it is finished. And so this is the true distinction, right? Even if the ethics might be similar, some world religions will tell you, always keep clawing, always keep striving for perfection, for being like a God. And Jesus says, it's finished. I did it. I did the work. And so I want to encourage us as these weeks go on, it's kind of a weird, I almost feel like it's more of a lecture today than a, than a sermon, and that I'm teeing up the next six to 12 weeks of this process. Um, I want to encourage us to learn and to sort of lay down some of our preconceived notions, right? Some of the things we might've seen on the news about say Muslims or some of the things we see on you know, TV about you know, Hindus, lay some of those things down. We wanna learn about their history so that we can better love people who have grown up in a different system so that we can better share Christ with people just like Paul shows us in Acts 17. Um, so again, kind of a strange intro week here, uh, but we're going to be diving into Hinduism. So if you want to take a look, just kind of look at Wikipedia or Encyclopedia Britannica online or something, read a little bit about Hinduism for next week, and we're going to dive into this conversation of Jesus among the world religions, right? What are, what are some similarities? What is some gold that we might mine from these other systems? What are the things that are really, that we have to watch out for? But how could we better learn and understand so that we can share uh, the beauty of Christ? So with that, let me pray to close us, and we'll enter then into this series starting next week with Hinduism. Um, Father, we thank you for these examples in Scripture, these things that almost seem against type or maybe what, we're, what, what we would expect in terms of how the Bible would deal with people from other faiths. We thank you, Lord, that you have at some times revealed yourself uh, directly, it seems, through other faiths, at sometimes uh, even directly maybe in other temples. Um, and we pray that you'd help us to wrestle with that, not that that... Um, just makes everything that's taught in those places okay, but help us to sort of unmake some of the hard uh, calcified walls that we have in our minds about other faiths so that we can know them and love them better, like Paul shows us in Acts 17. Uh, we pray that you would just uh, prepare our minds and our hearts, that we could learn uh, what your heart is for people around the world. Help us to understand their background, their faith, so we can share your gospel more lovingly. Uh, we thank you, Lord, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com.